Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to discover more through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit, and my name is Aiden. This podcast will serve as a space to exchange ideas from the collective experience. Good morning, everyone. We hope everyone had a relaxing weekend. In this week's episode, we continue our conversation with Will Pham, a licensed social worker who will be accumulating clinical hours to become a psychotherapist. Will comes with a wealth of knowledge and experience in mental health in the field of counseling and therapy. In this episode, we discuss and highlight the importance of mental health, why therapy may be necessary for many, and how we should reframe what success means. Please enjoy our discussion this week with Will Pham, and thank you for tuning in. Well, you shared to us that they, they don't call when you're when you're getting lost in your cane walking training. They call it what the teachable moments or a, a problem solving opportunity. A problem solving <laughs> opportunities. So of course you uh, holistically and as a person you went through a lot of hardships and you talked about earlier where you use a lot of those occasions when people are being rude to you. People are making all these assumptions because to be frank, a lot of times many people are making a lot of misjudgments because they know nothing about the other person they're transactioning with or interacting with. So it sounds like you are using and utilizing a lot of your hardships and like experiences to like teachable moments and you almost convert that into like a passion, right? Because of course you're a social worker, you have the masters and you're licensed in it, but your true passion in your next transition is going to be a clinical therapist. And so are you kind of using that to fuel your passion into a professional development into uh, for you to professionally to kind of deconstruct and debunk a lot of uh, stigmas out there? And how are you using that and how are you connecting your past experience into your passion as a social worker and as a future clinical therapist? You know, initially how I got into social work was, of course, this idea of like, hey, you know, high school, I had these social workers who worked with me. It was a very like positive experience. I wanted to provide that support to other people. But I think after the training center, the way I looked at social work was a little bit different in the sense of I kind of really adopted some different mentalities about the the kind of work that, that we do, one of which is very similar to the idea of, sh- of like structured discovery is the idea of believing in people's capacity and believing in the idea that people can, you know, resolve their own problems. And so, you know, if it isn't a structured discovery model, it's very much the idea of like, hey, you're going to come to the center and we're just going to tell you every time you make a mistake um, and that's how you're going to learn. Uh, rather than a structured discovery model where they're kind of asking you questions and making you kind of process and like problem solve and kind of coming to the insights by yourself. And I think that for myself within social work, that's definitely a place where um, I've been increasingly coming from, right? The idea of understanding for myself when I'm working with a family, the idea of like, instead of me being able to provide all the answers that I perceive to be, you know, the the best course of action, which may easily not be for this person in, in their own experience, what strengths have they come in with and how, and how can we utilize that to kind of resolve the existing problem? Because I think in a lot of ways, I, I very much think about it as kind of like mobilizing uh, the the family's existing abilities and like understanding what they have and haven't done yet to be able to just be simply a guide um, to provide options uh, for for them for them to make their own decision of what's going to work for that specific family. Yeah, absolutely. And what does that kind of look like? Like more, I guess, front end dialogue with actually understanding the family circumstance, understanding where they're coming from, and then I guess how is that um, 
strategy, I guess, tangibly seen in how you approach your day-to-day work with clients? Sure, yeah. I think, so if it's like, in terms of like working with clients particularly, I think that can come in from a variety of ways, specifically within the current work that we're doing. So essentially it focuses on the idea of um, students who are have um, a multitude of different barriers to attending school. And essentially our role is to come in and to be able to work with that family to be able to resolve those those, those barriers, right? So I think in the in the piece of just like, coming in and, and understanding as a outsider, hey, like I don't understand this family at all and, and I don't understand their experiences, right? I think it starts off with building a relationship to just understand, hey, um, you know, like how have things been going for you? Like what has been your read on what the issue is? Because most of the time we may get information from a school saying, hey, this is what we think is, is, is the problem. But I think it's so critical to kind of work with a family and have a direct conversation with them about like what their perspective is, um, you know, what... Um, what efforts have they already attempted to, to be able to address the, the issue and kind of uh, just work with the family to kind of problem solve like different ideas that um, they may have not thought about, but just through like having dialogue about it, they, they may be able to process it just a little bit um, differently. So mm-hmm. kind of presenting them with the solution, but not exactly telling them like leading through example or showing them a potential uh, solution, but not necessarily telling them that this is the way that they should allowing the idea to be their idea. Is For what sure. it sounds like. Yeah, I think it, it, it could be even something as simple as this, right? Like, like I may, so let's, let's say I'm, I'm talking to you and you have a potential issue, right? And I may ask you, okay, like what are, what are some of the things you've, you've done so far to try to address that? And you may say a multitude of things. And then I may simply just, just ask you a question of like, okay, you've, you've tried all of these different things what success have you had with that? And if you're saying, hey, I did this thing like a year ago and it went really well with me, well, my, my mind says, hey, let's let's just do more of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it isn't even necessarily presenting a solution. Um, those solutions can come directly from the specific client, so. No, that's powerful. Understanding kind of seems like the foundation of all of it, like first self-understanding, self-awareness, kind of what Benoit talked about, but then awareness and understanding of the situation or the case that you're actually dealing with, whether that's client relations or the specific case in general. So that's definitely a really, you know, powerful tip. For sure. Um, It's also the idea of recognition, right? Because I think especially in our field or a lot of other service centered, nonprofit fields, many of the experts, they come in with this uh, savior uh, mentality or uh, messiah complex, right? Where, oh, I come with all these fancy degrees. I have the tools, I have the degrees, I have the expertise, I have the experience to help you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to solve your problems. And I think that's a very dangerous uh, and slippery slope because the matter of fact is what Will talked about is we're simply providing facilitation and we're trying to guide them into their own self-discovery of what the potential issues are because uh, acceptance is the first step to recovery, of course, like we talked about. And for them to recognize that there is a problem, you have to first talk them through that, oh, they have to recognize and realize there is a problem to work with, and then we can walk, uh, work together through a partnership to create and co-create a uh, level of uh, interventions, level of plans to uh, best empower the family. But I think it's a lot of times that many of us come in with this mentality and we think we know it all, and we often negate their aspect and the fact that it's their lives and they know more about themselves than we do, because we just we might be seeing them for the first time and we might be seeing them at that school setting or the house setting, whatever that may be. But I think it's that level of empathy and the level of understanding that we're recognizing and accepting the fact that 
this is your life and we simply want to provide services and connect you with resources that we may be considered as useful to your uh, circumstances. So yeah, I think uh, self-awareness and I think that level of humility, empathy are extremely important in our field. 100%. You know, there's there's a saying in social work that goes, clients are the experts of their own lives, which, you know, I think is like something on a day-to-day basis that we definitely kind of um, take very seriously. So. so I think it's really interesting, uh, kind of coming full circle a little bit with when we talked about perfectionist tendencies, generally... Uh, I think myself included, perfectionists will gravitate towards number-centric careers, and social work is far from that, right? You're always dealing with managing clients, managing their experiences. There's almost no such thing as perfect client service, right? So I'm really curious as to how you balance that personal expectation, kind of always trying to achieve that perfection point in some ways, and then managing the client's experiences as well, just kind of what that relationship is and you know, how you navigate it. Yeah, I think working with clients is such a unique thing in terms of how it relates to the perfectionism piece because for myself, uh, the way that I look at it is like when I'm working with clients, some of that perfectionism stuff just goes out the window uh, because I think that one of like the really strong core beliefs I have is like in any type of kind of like um, either like therapeutic relationship or a like case management relationship that, that you're working with someone like it's going to be impossible for you know the like clinician or the social worker to be putting in 100% efforts and then for that person to kind of leave gaining all the things that they need to gain if you know zero efforts were put in on on their end right so i think for me it's like so much of it is a thought of like how much how much efforts am I putting in and how much efforts um, is the family I'm working with putting in um, so I feel like because it's a much more collaborative space the pressure I feel like is taken off of me so some of that perfectionism stuff just is definitely um, much less um, existent in in this kind of realm and and also too when I'm working with clients I'm just in a very different headspace right because when you're just in the office and you're like working on like a report or working on data things like it's you're so in your own head but when I'm sitting down with a client I am just trying to be as present as possible I think that just through that act itself it really kind of changes my own ideas about um, you know what it means to have a quote-unquote like perfect um, session so Mm -hmm. and I can imagine if you're trying to solve such a macro problem for the client that you're working with your personal problem of almost how you're showing up becomes almost dissolves right because you're trying to solve their giant problem obviously you want to give your full self to helping them out, but I don't think you're going to get hung up on the, what could I have done better a little bit? I mean, sure you can reflect and that's probably an important part of your guys' process, but I don't think in the present moment you guys are, you know, getting in your own head about what could I be doing better? You're just trying to solve the macro problem in general, right? For sure. Yeah. I think, you know, in the, in the moments where you're kind of talking face to face with the client, you're just trying to be so present and like understanding them um, and understanding their, their context that it's, it definitely pushes you away from like thinking about yourself and like how you're, you're like necessarily doing. So, mm-hmm. no, that's great. And one thing that Ben shared with me is obviously, and we kind of talked about it a little bit, but your expertise in mental health, I'm sure both with social work, uh, as well as you're pursuing a therapy hours, I guess at this point, or how is, what does that process look like? And kind of what's that mental health experience look like? Sure. Yeah. So, so a lot of my experiences, so in grad school, I was working at um, an agency in Philadelphia that worked specifically with individuals 
um, who are living with HIV slash AIDS um, and we're experiencing an array of different um, serious mental health conditions, right? This could be things like depression, anxiety, different like psychotic disorders, like, like schizophrenia, right? Um, so yeah, so that was my experience. And then um, at the time I was doing two things. I was leading individual therapy sessions and then also leading um, group therapy sessions with individuals who are specifically encountering um, challenges with substance use disorder. Uh, but at this point, of course, I've spent like several years within working specifically within treatment case management. Um, and then now I'm currently in the process, like at some point I'm transitioning out to do something that that's going to be more clinical and then to start kind of like um, racking up hours. So mm-hmm. what avenue of mental health or problem facing society right now do you think is the most pressing or should be addressed um, most quickly? Obviously, there's a wide range of mental health issues that face, but are there any ones that are really jumping off the page in the experience that you've seen so far? I think right now, I mean, we kind of talked about the idea of like, st- like stigma earlier, but one of the things I think about is just like mental health stigma just in general, right? It's like, um, I think that one of the biggest barriers to people actually receiving mental health services is just that stigma, right? It's like, and I think it's hard because I think that, that there's some connections between blindness and mental health, right? In terms of like the sheer exposure. There are certainly regions of the United States where there are people who know no one who has ever sought mental health services, right? And um, the idea of going to therapy is very like stigmatized. People kind of see that as like, hey, if, if you go to therapy, that means that you're crazy, right? Um, and so unfortunately, we don't really live in a society as of yet that kind of views mental health in the same way we view physical health, right? It's like, if you go to a doctor, um, people feel very comfortable talking about that, right? Like talking about, hey, like, you know, I had a, I had a cold, I went to the like doctor or, you know, uh, or even going to like a like hospital, right? Uh, people feel very comfortable talking about those those experiences, but we definitely don't live in a culture as of yet that people feel that same level of comfort in disclosing the fact that they're going to like, like therapy. And I think that there's a really big, um, there, there's a really big differentiation between those two levels of health. Um, I think that, that the, the stigma that's associated with the idea of seeking out mental health um, has definitely attributed to that. I think, you know, in terms of the exposure thing too, it's like for people who have never had um, any exposure to anyone being in therapy or uh, experiencing therapy themselves, I think just like the lack of knowledge about it, I think is is really critical. The idea that if you know nothing about therapy or have never known anyone who went to therapy, you don't really fully know what's involved with it. And so some people could just view it as like, hey, we're just going, we're talking, like what could that possibly do, right? Um, so I think that that is also like another barrier to people getting um, the appropriate mental health services. Uh, but I've, I've, I've been in the process of like doing like a lot of reading on um, just to kind of like start and kind of refamiliarize myself with like different like mental health conditions. And, you know, there was like some wild stat about people who experience um, depression and anxiety and the like, number out of that set of people who actually receive like um, like mental health services. I don't remember what the specific number was, but it was something wild, like the idea of like 50% of people who actually experience depression actually seek um, like formal mental health services for it. When you think about something like therapy, so much about therapy is the idea of being vulnerable and like talking about how you're feeling and like your emotions and your thoughts. For people who like don't grow up in families like that, that's like also an extra barrier, right? Like you grow mm-hmm. up with seeing your parents go to like a primary care physician, right? Like that, mm-hmm. that's like normal. But like, what if you grew up in a family where you've never kind of expressed your emotions in any kind of way? Like my family, we definitely did not do that, right? So 
I think the what's more interesting about mental health is I think a lot of them are similarly very ordinary symptoms such as like anxiety, depression, insomnia, and etc. And I think there's a lot of mental health components are deeply rooted in the expectations piece. And of course, all three of us on different occasions we talked about how toxic expectations can be and how it is very very crucial to manage your expectations. Because if if you were to uh, look back in your life and reflect on your life, right, a lot of your resentment and a lot of my resentment towards myself and towards whether it's my loved ones, my girlfriend, or my family, are because either myself I fell short of my own expectations or my family fell short of my expectations for them, and then you become resentful, and the resentment get bred and stronger and stronger, and eventually to a point where you have some sort of incidents, right? And uh, there's a quote that Aiden just talked about earlier is. Expectations is the thief of happiness, and of course, it's not our words. It's um, but the idea is that whenever you have expectations, you are get so caught up in expectations, or that's all you see. And even though your loved one yourself, you're doing great things because it didn't quite meet up with your, where your expectations are. Then you think you didn't do enough. They didn't do enough, and that's like the whole uh, point related to the optimality versus perfectionist point, right? Because What's considered to be optimal is you. You did great things, and that is optimal for everyone. Like objectively speaking, you've achieved the optimal outcome, but because it didn't achieve or get to your expected level, which is a perfectionist point, now you're highly anxious about what you did, and now you think uh, you didn't quite produce enough of quality outcome, even though that's not the case. So I like to uh, interesting note you as a professional who is very immersed and experienced in the mental health industry and the whole whole space. How are you doing, or what are you doing on a day to day and a personal life or a professional life, and what are you doing to manage your expectations, and how are you doing to help manage your clients' expectations in their uh, aspects of life? Because I do think that uh, people will be a lot happier if they can find ways to manage their expectations in all aspects of their lives. Yeah, I think. One of the things, uh, particularly in like working with clients, is thinking about, like thinking less about something being good or bad, and thinking more about the idea of like, does this serve you or does this not serve you, right? Because I think so much of the time people have this idea of like, I should be doing this, this person should be doing that, right? But it's like, if those things are actually done, like, does this actually, um, in the scheme of things, is this actually helpful to you, or is this just an expectation that you feel like you have to have? you know, for whatever reason, right? Is it like, like something that your family has always expected from you and you feel you have to do this even though it's, you know, extremely detrimental to you, right? So I feel like that just that simple idea of like kind of working with clients and kind of thinking about things from that kind of perspective and working with clients to kind of also process that I think is pretty, pretty uh, impactful. I love that you said, uh, does it serve you or does it not serve you? Because I think the assumption there changes with time, right? Because something can serve you at different points in time, whereas something, if it's inherently good or inherently bad, that's almost like a gospel be-all. Sure. Whereas when if it's serving, it changes with time. There's a concept that I really like called God values that uh, Mark Manson introduces in that uh, a book about hope, everything is fucked. So the idea is that you have different God values at different points in time of your life. So say in college, your God value might be relationships and having a good time with your friends, right? And then when you get out of that point in time, your God value can switch, say, then it's career, then it's health. But 
something that inherently was good in a college time frame might have been good or bad and it might have been serving us at that specific time but then once you change the circumstance change the environment it's an entirely new conversation you know like something that was serving me at that point that aligned with that god value then changes five years later and it definitely doesn't serve me now when you have a new you know set of goals set of ideas set of values altogether no i think that 100 percent makes sense and i think one of the things i also take from that is the idea like like you said at one point in your life, things could be serving you, but then your life kind of um, circumstances change. I think also within that, it's like, if that is the case, kind of like working with clients to understand like, hey, like at this one time in your life, this was working out so well for you. Like, let's talk about like what was, what is different now and why this, you know, and and why this may not be serving you, right? Um, but I think also too, this kind of goes like full circle with some other things we talked about, right? Which is the idea of, you know, things like, our current like social media culture right um and it's the idea of like what expectations come from that and what people feel like they they have to or should do right or even the idea of like success right i feel like in the in the society we live in now there's a very like um there are some very traditional ideas of like what success means and i think that sometimes when people go down that path and that path doesn't work for them, that can be extremely distressing because it's like, you know, hey, like we were led to believe this entire time that like we have to, you know, take this very traditional route to get to what is going to make us happy. But then what doesn't make us happy, like what does that mean? Sure. And I guess I have a question for both of you. We can kind of do a full circle with it. But what do you think culture and or society is defining as success? And what would you think the reframe of success that would really, you know, benefit the common person? Want to hit that first, Benoit? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I think the, the the society definitely associates success with monetary values, which is the whole reason why I forced me to make that professional pivot from the private sector to the nonprofit sector, because I realized that because the society and especially the Western capitalist society and the world that we live in put so much disproportionate emphasis on what success means and how it's so important to be achieving that success in a short time or frame, right? That's why all these like business mastermind courses, all these things are catered like cryptocurrency and all these things are catered to the idea that you have to, if you're to be successful, you have to find a fast track to success and to obtain that success, you have to do all these X, Y, and Z things that are very arbitrary, I think, um, on the personal level. But yeah, I think that it's very important to talk about success. And I think what Aiden talked about is extremely, extremely crucial and necessary for us to reframe what success means, because I think that putting so much disproportionate emphasis and putting success on a pedestal is definitely exaggerating the uh, prevalence of mental health. Because uh, for someone maybe who's in their 30s and maybe that the world is telling them to be considered successful by the society, you have to have a house by the age of 30 or you have to sign the mortgage. You have to achieve all these things and check off all these boxes by the age of 30. In hindsight, 30 is such a young age, right? And maybe you make it a few mistakes early on in your life, but 30 is not the end of the world. But because people are so caught up in this this tight window frame and the mindset of what success means and how much time we have to achieve that, I think people are naturally inherently become more anxious because they think I need to do more. I'm not doing enough. I need to be better. I need to do more. I need to do all these things to accumulate uh, my journey and my experiences to become successful. So I think definitely we do need a paradigm shift and a shift in the mindset of what success means. And I think it's very important for the society and for everyone to realize that success is not binary. It's not a black and white. There's many different pathways to success and success can mean and are defined as differently for every people. So yeah, I think we definitely need to reframe how we consider and view 
success as a whole. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. You know, I think that for me in our culture now, success is very much defined by the monetary aspect as Benoit discussed, but also status, right? It's like you may be working in a job that doesn't provide you a lot of monetary value, but it provides you a lot of status, right? Um, so, yeah, because when you think about it, right, when you go to like a party, people are, are commonly asking whether you're at a party or you're like on a plane meeting someone, what do you do, right? And the second that that, that someone says what they do, you're each person's already making a like judgment of like what um, what this person's value is, and I think that that of course is very tied into um, you know our kind of like social expectations about what it means to be su- successful. Um, I think just in talking about this in general, it just makes me think about all of like society's expectations on people and like how that's that's such a big weight. And I think that goes back to our first discussion about family dynamics, right? Because I think our expectations. Our God values, how Mark Mason defines it, or how we define it as the highest value in our life, what we prioritize the most. And for Aiden and myself, we consider certain things more important than monetary values and social prestige, which is why we were able to go through that transitional phase to leave our what's considered as prestigious uh, work setting and the big branding to something more that's smaller, but creates more impact and meaning in our lives. And I think that up until a certain age, the responsibility falls onto your family to instill those values into you, right? To tell you what's important, to give you the abilities and the tools to recognize what are the uh, metrics and standards that really matter in life. Not the money, not the social prestigious, not what you do, but rather what you have to uh, bring for the world. And so I'll be interested to talk about our family dynamics and how maybe how our family enabled us to have that early stage on recognition and self-awareness about these things, about what's considered as truly valuable values versus what are more shallow and more more surface level, right? So um, yeah, if anyone of you talk about how, what kind of roles your family played in your life into why you're the person you are now, because I'm very fascinated with the nature versus nurture, but I do think in a lot of times, nurturing aspects have a lot more dominant aspects on who, what kind of person you turn out to be, because the 18 years, the 17 years, the 15 years that your family truly have to foster and, and try to cultivate for you to become the right kind of person, the human before the experience, right? Versus maybe what kind of person that the world have taught you to become and just the disparities and the gaps and the differences among that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think in thinking about my family, you know, there's like a lot of messages that, you know, my family experience has provided with me. Like, you know, of course, we've talked about the idea of the importance of like achievement. I think, too, there's like a lot of indirect messages that your family provides you, right? It's like growing up, um, you know, like my mom worked super hard. My mom worked like super long hours, right? So it's like it's kind of instilling this like indirect message of the importance of like work ethic, right? So, um, yeah. So but I think what's difficult is that growing up in a family where my mom is a um, is a immigrant and, you know, has low English proficiency. What's also difficult is that I saw her being in a position where she didn't really have a lot of, um, of options in terms of the employment that she could choose. So when she was previously living in Vietnam, she worked as, as a school teacher. But, you know, in the States now for years and years and years, my mom has like, like worked in a um, in a like, like factory setting. Um, and so it's not necessarily, you know, something that she was excited to I do, but it was like certainly something that, you know, uh, that it was like certainly something that she was able to do uh, with her level of like English proficiency and something that was able to, you know, provide funds to support a family. So I think through that experience and looking at that indirectly, one of the things that I had, you know, realized growing up was the idea of like, 
my mom didn't have this opportunity to kind of choose what her career was when she, you know, uh, had immigrated to these states. And for me to be able to kind of like walk a path where I am able to have choice because of the the privileges that I've had is like pretty important. So it's like, of course, you know, like social work for a lot of people is seen as a career that may have high status, but not necessarily a lot of like monetary, um, you know, benefits to it. Right. So, but I think for me, um, that definitely kind of propelled me to do something that I, you know, felt like I was going to have a lot of passion for and, and something that I felt like was going to have some, some very tangible impact. Um, you know, but I think for like someone like my sister, she had a very different career trajectory, right? Like my sister works at, at Amazon in Seattle. And so, you know, she, you know, makes six figures um, and, you know, she and her life has been very different in that sense. And I think that um, it's definitely has been driven by achievement, but also, um, you know, uh, the definitions of success with the monetary value that that's been attached with that. So what do you think were some of the main things that you have kind of gained from your own family, like upbringing, Aiden? Definitely. So two things come to mind, I think more than anything is kind of standing up for what you believe in and putting others first or trying to give back. So I guess the first thing, uh, standing up for what you believe in, my parents are just both very outspoken for the topics that they believe in. So I guess a pretty relevant example to what's happening now. Um, there's a park across the street from my house and they're building a pipeline. It's a giant gas pipeline that's going through Delaware County. If anyone lives in Delaware County knows about it right now, but basically it's leaking all over the place. They're finding weird smells in places. There's giant sinkhole, like probably less than 500 yards from my house. It's like in the park, basically the pipeline had collapsed and basically it's causing all sorts of problems all over the news. But my parents were two of the first people at the they basically was like a protest rally sort of organization, um, just kind of standing up for the fact that that shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be putting people's lives at risk for the profit of a gas line. Um, and they're kind of always to the front. That's just one you know, tangible example for what they're speaking up for. Uh, my mom works the polls every year trying to make sure that people come out to vote. Just really, I think it's actions speak louder than words. Um, you can always say so much. Like they're definitely both very introverted. Also why I'm very introverted, but their actions speak their truth. And that kind of comes into my next lesson of putting others first and kind of trying to give back. Um, my dad has been a teacher in Chester, Chester School District for the last two decades. And if anyone doesn't have any context, Chester is just completely poverty stricken. It's, you know, unemployment's off the walls. Like he has generally 40 kids a classroom, 30 to 40 kids in an elementary school classroom. Heater rarely works. Air conditioning is not even a dream of a thing. And of the 30 to 40 kids, he'll get maybe one to two grandparents on back to school night, much less parents that are actually there. So kind of putting aside the profit, like teachers aren't necessarily paid the most, but kind of doing the right thing because education's, I guess, a inherent right that everyone should deserve. Um, kind of seeing that, you know, he could have gone pre-med and done all sorts of like higher paying, higher status um, type salaries, kind of like what you alluded to, but he knew that teaching and giving people the opportunity to education was something that was most important to him. So seeing that both from what they stand up for and how they act, I think is kind of the biggest takeaways for me. So those two lessons, both standing up for what you believe in, as well as giving back to others and doing what's right, I think is two of the values that I always saw that really allowed me to navigate the last few years of early adulthood, right? So when I came out of college, I entered public accounting, which is obviously a very money-focused 
career path. Like you're going to hate your life for 10 years, but then you become a partner and you can do whatever you want. So that was what society was kind of saying. It's like an easy path, not super risky. They're like, you're going to make a lot of money. You might not enjoy the life, but I ultimately recognize those two lessons that I've seen through their actions are ultimately what I kind of wanted. So a big thing there is, you know, upon graduation, I definitely had to kind of take a step back once moving out of public accounting, but it's allowed me to be in a circumstance where I can uh, study and learn about things that I actually inherently enjoy and why I can have conversations like this on a random Saturday. Um, so a big thing there is, you know, as much as I can see um, some of the coworkers that I started with, you know, I started in a class of 50, 50 people at EY and most of them are still there. They're still working those 80 hour weeks, still going through all the motions of it. Probably you're making a lot more money, probably are rising in status a lot faster. But the big thing that Ben introduced me to is the idea of everyone is a different timeline. And I think that kind of speaks volumes to a lot of the stuff we've talked about, right? So a lot of people are on a different timeline of when they'll get to whatever society considers success, whatever they consider success, whatever their definition changes, and if what serves them changes throughout the course of their life. So at that point, um, chasing money through accounting wasn't serving me, so I recognized it wasn't. So I think that's kind of like a full circle thing with, you know, it's a different regardless of what your definition of success is, regardless of where you want your life to go, it's ultimately your own timeline, right? You can't compare your timeline to someone else's. So I think that's kind of a full circle lesson that I've learned both from my parents as well as this conversation itself, um, you know, which I'm really grateful that we're having. As we're kind of closing up, well, I'd love to kind of prompt our follow or our final question to you. Um, we generally ask our guests to provide advice and or, you know, their approaches to navigating the challenges that life throws their way, um, whether it's a mentee that you might be advising or a client, um, any parting words and or a inspirational speech, so to speak. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I think just the idea of everyone has their own timeline, I think is just so relevant for uh, for just like people in their 20s these, these days. Um, I think that we live in a time where there's a lot of pressure, of course, as we discussed, to kind of find success at an early age, but also like not only find success, but find your, your identity, right? And I think that I have several friends who have, you know, have gone into one thing, um, have transitioned to something else, and, you know, and just know a lot of people in their 20s who just like are still not 100% sure like what, um, you know, what their passion is going to be and like experience a, a significant amount of anxiety about it, right? About the uncertainty of it all. Um, and I think one of the best pieces of advice that I got was, you know, two things. One, the idea that um, someone telling me that it's okay to explore because I think that much of our culture goes against the idea and we kind of tend to kind of weigh more in on the idea of like how important it is for someone to be certain at like a young age. Uh, but also too the idea that um, you know there was this period in grad school where I was like finishing up school and I went to my professor once and I asked him once once you graduate does everyone feel prepared and he and he had chuckled and he said to me um, you know he um, he appreciates more the students that he sees who leave the program and feel uncertain about their skill set 
than the students who leave and who are so self-confident that in the future will have no more room to, to, to like grow, right? And so I think that's a very opposite idea to, you know, a lot of the, the ways that people view the, uh, things um, in, in our time now where uncertainty is seen as like a bad thing. Um, and I think that depending on how it's viewed, uncertainty can certainly be a very positive thing, right? Like if, if you're uncertain about something, that, that may push you to kind of learn more about it and, you know, have more of a growth mindset. So. Yeah, well, so I really appreciate the advice that you gave and the, the parting advice that your professor gave to you upon your graduation, because I think it's the idea that your professor is talking about is to, the ability to be flexible and adaptable, right? Because for a lot of people, especially high achievers and a lot of people with type A personalities like ourselves, once we're so gone ho about a certain goal, we just, we're going to ram through different obstacles and try to hit that objective at no matter the cost. But if we're not understanding that life happens and life throws different curveballs at you and there's different challenges that are inherent to just the nature of life, I think we're going to have a lot of anxiety and a lot of mental health challenges if we don't recognize and reconcile with the fact that life happens and it's very important to be adaptable and to be flexible with our own goals, but also what the life has to offer. And of course, you talked about uh, earlier in the episode that the reason why you are able to detach yourself from a perfectionist point when you're working with the clients, because you have the empathy and the love and the caring for and the understanding for your clients. So you do understand that just because you're providing X and Y amount of resources and advices, that doesn't mean your client is going to subscribe to those because life happens and they are dealing with their own problems. So through that, you're able to instill that empathy and that caring for the client so you don't get caught up in the expectations of your own your work, right? Because the outcome of your work is not predicated on what you have to offer, but how much the client has to take away from it. So I think the, the very important takeaway for all of us is whether it's subscribing to the societal idea of success and also whether recognizing that everyone has their own timeline and you, you only have to worry about your timeline or versus the others. I think the core idea boils down to the simple fact that you have to allow yourself self-empathy and self-love and self-patience because oftentimes like you're like Aiden that you're one of your two core principles is giving back to the right thing and you all of us especially in social service and our similar nature people we pride ourselves for being able to give back and do the right thing by many many people and we often cut many slacks and we're very patient with a lot of people by inducing and you know giving them empathy and love but a lot of times I think we're a lot more critical uh, for ourselves. A lot of times we do not give that space of recognition and we don't give that space of understanding towards ourselves because we live by our own metrics and we live by our certain values, which I think are all attributing to the mental health crisis. The key takeaway of today's episode and the whole mental health crisis is to make sure to remind yourself to give yourself the grace of care, the grace of acceptance and the grace of understanding that not everything is binary and everything has its own timeline and you have to respect that. And I think once doing that, I think we can gradually help tackle and combat the mental health epidemic that the current society goes through as a whole. Well, I uh, really, really appreciate the advices that you gave and the fact that you were able to bring awareness to the whole blindness stigma and the whole stigma against the mental health piece. So since you're dark on social media, I'm, we're not going to help you advertise anything to confine you on on those but yeah at the end of that we really appreciate you doing this with us for three hours on a saturday night thanks so much guys thank you for listening to another episode of discover more we release a new episode every monday on spotify and apple podcasts 
and would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.